0: Wow, that is so powerful to see that, uh, those images of just the fruit of gospel ministry and uh, seeing that, at least for us, uh, historically in a cross-cultural context, uh, what joy that should bring to our hearts. And so, uh, praise the Lord, great things he has done and is doing. And uh, I welcome our uh, campuses joining us here today on this Lovely morning. Thank you for coming. And uh, uh, by boat or car, whichever it was for you today. Let's get into God's Word together. You know, the Bible has many incredible stories of change of fortunes. This is one of the things that children, I know my daughters, They when I put them down at night, you know, I often will tell them a story. And, uh, you know, what story do they want? You know, it's it's always the dramatic stories, you know, Daniel in the lion's den or uh, David and Goliath and these sorts of uh, surprise stories of God intervening and working and these are the things that capture our attention and our imagination and uh, mean so much to us. And the Bible has many, many of these. For example, Joseph is brought from the horrific ancient prison there in Egypt to the very throne room of Pharaoh, he interprets the dream and is instantly made number two in all of the Egyptian kingdom. Mordecai is under a death sentence. You're reading the story you think that guy is he's literally dead meat uh, but through Esther and the providence of God he suddenly finds himself ruler in the land. David, it's just a little shepherd boy who goes to see his brothers at the, uh, at the front of war and suddenly finds himself the giant slayer and famous since then. Simon of Cyrene, walking one day into Jerusalem, thinking it's another day just like every other day, suddenly finds himself constricted by the Roman soldiers, carries Jesus' cross, will spend eternity with that honor and distinction. So these are stories that... Uh, that children love, that we as adults love, because they're stories of people going from relative obscurity to suddenly finding themselves with great honor and distinction. These are stories that even in our culture tend to make their way into the scripts of movies and onto theaters with, you know, there's just something about the, the little girl who becomes the queen or the the little boy uh, who becomes the king, or the slave who becomes the prince. These sorts of things are, they're stories from rags to riches, from the lowest place to the highest place. And our series in Romans today brings us to a passage in Romans 9, which urges us to realize that if we are Christians, we are living our own amazing story of spiritual rags to riches, from obscurity to great honor and distinction. And so we're going to get into that today. I want to do a, a, a brief review, since we have not been in Romans for a couple of weeks, and let's remind ourselves what we have been learning uh, most recently. So we we spent a long time in Romans 8. Basically, the story of Romans 8 is God's sovereign love, and this amazing love that uh, we will experience forever. There is nothing that can separate us from this love that God has for us in his son, Jesus Christ. We get to Romans 9, and there is this change from the, the, the sovereign love of God to the sovereign grace of God, especially as it relates to thorny issues relative to well, if this is the gospel, what is the role of the Old Testament? And specifically, what is the role of Israel in God's purpose and plan? You know, many times I think uh, modern-day Christians, we sort of view the Bible as being, you know, like there's only one testament. You know, we just read in the New Testament. And it's so easy to forget that there's this two-thirds of the Bible preceding the life and ministry of Jesus that is also God's word, very much a part of what uh, God has revealed to us. And because of that, and because Paul is writing to a Roman church where there were Jews and Gentiles, he has to address the question then, how does Israel fit into this? And what about ethnic Israel and this old covenant and the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David? Uh, how does that fit into now this new covenant With Jesus Christ. He begins chapter 9 by saying, Hey, let's just acknowledge something. To be a Jew is to have incredible privileges in the redemptive story. And he lists several of these, uh, including recipients of divine revelation and covenants, and uh, uh, that they uh, had the temple and all these other things that place them uniquely in the story of redemption amongst all the nations of the earth. Are they all saved? Do they all go to heaven? Are they all under the grace of God because they are DNA of Abraham? And Paul already addresses this in early in chapter 9. He says, not all Israel is Israel. Not everybody that is ethnically descended from Abraham is under the eternal promise of Abraham. Abraham. And he shows that God has always practiced a distinguishing grace, even amongst the descendants of Abraham. And we see this as he goes through uh, the example of Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, Moses, Pharaoh. So from the patriarchs to the Exodus, we see in the story that God has distinguished in the application of his saving grace. Why has he done that? He says in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, it being salvation, but on God who has mercy. Since God is sovereign in salvation, then what difficult questions might that produce for us? Well, that doesn't seem fair to me. And why are we to blame which are the two questions he brings up and gives answers for. We've seen that already. And basically he says, for those of you that think you want, you know, you want justice in this, no you don't. Because justice is all sinners go to hell. We, sinners don't want justice, sinners want mercy. And that's why salvation is an act of mercy. None of us deserve to be saved. If God chooses to save some of us, he is not violating any sense of justice. Rather, he is displaying the glory of his mercy. Which, like the the potter with the clay, is his divine right. Why does he do this? Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. This was our All About Him message a few weeks ago. Behind God's display of his justice and holiness in judgment and his grace and mercy in salvation is God's ultimate purpose, which is the full display of all of his glorious perfections. We, as sinners, we want to uh, be reductionistic with God and to only think that he expresses the attributes that we like. And as sinners, the attributes that we like are his love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness. God, we're good with you, showing off those aspects in salvation. We are not particularly fond, as sinners, of his holiness, his justice, uh, and uh, his, his judgment no, no, God, we don't, we don't want that part of you. But God is not reducing himself to our particular categories of uh, preference. He is displaying the full glory of who he is. Or to say it this way, salvation is all about him and salvation is about all of him. Can I say that again? Because the first part I've said for 22 years, but the second part I kind of came up with this week, and I thought that's a good way to say it, okay? Get this in, let's, let's infuse this truth into the, into the, the fabric of our, our church. Salvation is all about him, and salvation is about all of him. God is unveiling all that he is in his purpose and plan in redemption and in salvation, so now, let's get into the text here, and you'll notice at the end of verse 24, it, it, uh, uh, it, it doesn't end with a, I'm sorry, verse 23, it doesn't end with a period. In other words, this is just flowing in, the sentence continues, into verse 24, and this is our text today through verse 29. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. May God bless his word to us today. And what we have Paul doing here is answering a third question. Remember, the first question uh, in response to the sovereign grace of God is is that fair? That doesn't seem fair. Second question is, then why are we to blame? The third question, especially if you're a a Jew, is, where's that in the Bible? We pastors, we love that question, right? We say something and and the sort of inquisitive church member comes to us and says, oh, but where is that in the Bible? Or better yet, when one of the church members comes to the pastor and says, this is the way it's supposed to be done, when the pastor says, hmm, where's that in the Bible? It's one of our favorite questions. But it's a natural question because here you have Paul who sounds somewhat, if you didn't know anything of the story, sort of like a usurper to the whole flow of a Jewish history, Old Testament history. Naturally, you hear this and you say, okay, you've done nine and a half chapters of teaching on the gospel. How do we know what you're saying is actually biblical? Like, can you show from the Bible that what you are claiming about salvation is true? And so what Paul does now from this point to the end of chapter 11 is he addresses the confusion amongst primarily the Jews, but also a, a, a well-read Gentile, what's the role of, 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 of Judaism and Jews in God's redemptive story? He's already shown in chapter 4 that God didn't save Abraham because of who he was, right? Remember that, that, that God saved Abraham by justification through faith. And the point of chapter 4 was, if Abraham had to be saved, out of whom there's like three major religions and all the rest, one of the most righteous men in our mind and that's ever lived, if even Abraham had to be justified by faith, and my friend, so do you. You're no Abraham. Uh, that's the point. So he's already established justification for Abraham by faith. But what about all of his descendants? Do they get like a free pass to heaven? Because they have the DNA of Abraham coursing through their veins. And if God can lavish a Jewish believer with mercy through the gospel, can he lavish a similar sovereign mercy for a non-Jew, for a Gentile? Is ethnicity a barrier to God's saving grace? Is salvation about race or is salvation about grace? Did you get that? I hope you're with me here. All right, and appreciating what I'm trying to do. So to get there, if you heard in the, in the scripture reading, he has four Old Testament quotations. Two of them say that God's plan includes the Gentiles, and two say that Jewish DNA do, alone doesn't save. Now here's the delicate balance that Paul is trying to address here, and I hope that you see this, is that he wants them, and he wants us, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to realize that salvation was never an ethnic thing for descendants of Abraham. So to the to the spiritually privileged he is giving a warning. To the spiritually disenfranchised he's giving hope. To the Jews he is giving a warning, to the Gentiles he's giving and how does he do that? With four Old Testament references. And I don't know if you grew, woke up today and thought, you know, today I'd really like to, you know, uh, dig into the hermeneutics of Old, New Testament use of Old Testament scripture, all the rest. I'm going to guess most of you probably did not. But I'm going to try to teach this in a way that you get what he's saying. And I promise you, if you get it, this is a word of encouragement from God's word today. So he, you and and to do this, I actually want to reverse the order Okay, I want to deal with the Isaiah text first, and then we're going to go to Hosea. So he begins in this portion by warning the spiritually privileged. This is verses 27 through 29. Let me just read it again so you hear it. And Isaiah, okay, Isaiah, if you're brand new to the Bible, Old Testament prophet, cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And then, secondly, and Isaiah predicted if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Sodom and become like Gomorrah. All right, now, what's he getting at here? Both of these are from the revered prophet Isaiah. A good Jew loves Isaiah. And he goes right to Isaiah and says, even Isaiah talked about the fact. That there is ethnic Israel, descendants of Abraham Israel, but they're not all saved. That there is a, what he calls a remnant, okay? There is a, a true Israel within ethnic Israel, a remnant. So what's a remnant? Well, if you go to a carpet store and you say, hey, do you got any remnants? They don't look at you and go... You mean theologically? No. What are they thinking about? Oh, a remnant, of course. It's when we do a job and there's a little bit of leftover and sometimes we sell the smaller portion of the larger roll of carpet. Or if you go to a fabric store, and here I'm out of my league, but I know this to be true, you can go to a fabric store and you can ask them, do you have any remnants? And they'll say, oh, well... You, by that, you don't mean the theological question of the role of the Jews in God's plan. You mean by that whether we have a little portion of cloth that was a part of the larger role, I think technically called a bolt. Did I get that right? A bolt of fabric. They get that, okay? And that's, But that's the same image we're talking about here, something that is a smaller part of the larger whole. So as we apply that now to the question here, What he is getting at is the question of whether the whole bolt is saved, the whole Jewish bolt, the whole roll of carpet, or is there a subset within the larger that is actually under the grace of God? And Isaiah says only a remnant will be saved. The second quote refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is helpful because if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was God's judgment upon these wicked cities there so long ago. And uh, Abraham's nephew, Lot, goes and lives in Sodom. And if you know the story, it was only Lot and his family that was saved from the judgment of God upon those cities. And so you have that same basic theme of salvation against the backdrop of God's judgment and wrath. Sodom and Gomorrah were completely destroyed, but Lot and his family were saved. So when we first talked about remnant, I put this graphic up here, just, it's simple, but it kind of gives you the idea. If we could put that graphic up. You have Israel, this is ethnic Israel, and then you have the remnant, those within that ethnicity who are actually under the grace of God. So if we go to the Sodom and Gomorrah story, basically what he is doing is this. He's, next slide, please. He is saying that Sodom and Gomorrah was, uh, was under the judgment of God, but only within that was Lot and his family saved. And so you see then that basic point that the Jews were spiritually privileged, still are, spiritually privileged privileged. They were descendants of Abraham and the patriarchs. They had the Mosaic covenant. They had the land. They had the legacy. But guess what? You grow up thinking that you're special in God's eyes, and then you read the Old Testament and in every story you're on the side of the hero. You're with Lot as he escapes from Sodom. You're picking up stones with David before he kills Goliath. You're like in there you are special you begin to think, I don't need the grace of God. I am saved because of who I am. I am saved because of the legacy of the family that I come from. Yet even Isaiah agrees with Paul. DNA doesn't save us. Even if it's Abraham's DNA. You talk about the best DNA that you could have. You read the whole Bible? Pick a DNA other than, you know, you know, being in Jesus' family, a half-brother or something like that, you're probably going to go with Abraham. I'm I just descended of Abraham. If there's anything that maybe DNA could get me to heaven, I'm going to have Abraham's DNA. And Paul basically is saying this. God has no privileged children. There is not a single human being that because of the DNA of who they came from somehow is unique and special under the saving grace of God. So can I ask you this today, friend? Do you somehow look in the mirror and see somebody special? Do you look in the mirror and think, you know, I'm glad I'm not like other men. I'm glad I'm not like other women, like this tax collector over here. Now, none of us would acknowledge that. But here's the more insidious reality. It is so easy for us to think that we are somehow privileged in the eyes of God. And maybe you don't look at your family DNA, but maybe you would look at the fact that you're an American. Are we somehow, does God like us better than that poor child in Zimbabwe or that Australian or that pick your place? Are we somehow under the favor of God? As much as we sing, God bless America, do we think that somehow we have more blessing from God because we are Americans after all? Are we we special in that way? Or maybe it's the denominational thing that you are in, and I can say this through the radio and through the internet, because we're a non-denominational church, okay? So it doesn't work for us, but maybe, maybe you look at, you know, my legacy, I come from people that have been faithful down through the centuries. I must be somehow under a special grace of God because look at the legacy. Or my papa was a preacher, my daddy was a deacon, my uncle was a missionary. (laughs) At least one person is tracking with me here. I wanna work this point a little bit more because I think it's a real problem. Or we think back to our, even in our own life story somehow and we think, ah, I, I used to do this and I, I used to do that. I mean, imagine being one of these sicko people who for 40 years has kept an award that he got for memorizing verses. <laughs> do that. I mean, grow up and realize that even if you have the Timothy Award from Moana, it doesn't mean that you are necessarily bound for heaven. I mean, if there was anything that would get me into heaven, if somehow I'm missing, I'm just going to hold this up, right? <laughs> I memorized 500 verses when I was in third grade, and therefore I must be going to heaven. How many people are going to miss heaven Because the true confidence for their salvation is in one of these things. You maybe were blessed to grow up spiritually privileged. You've known about Jesus your entire life. You come from a great family of Christians. You are solidly in the sort of flow of evangelicalism. It's only a remnant of that group that's going to be saved too. I think about the, the youth group that I grew up in, the church, and I went and spent a couple years at a Christian school. Like, If you were to take all the people that, that I knew growing up who at one time you know, were active in church and singing songs and you know throwing pine cones into fire at camp and all of that, if I was to take all of those people and make that a big circle, do you know how many of them today presently have affection for Jesus and are sincerely wanting to serve him with their life? What word would I apply to the group that actually is doing that? I would probably say remnant. That's a smaller circle than the circle of privilege. And you see herein lies the danger. We could say, oh, those Israelites, they so missed it. And yet how many people even today are gonna miss heaven forever because your hope and your trust is in something other than Jesus finished working on the cross for you. And I don't want that for any of us. I don't want it for me. I see this as a danger in my own heart in life. I mean, I've gotta to go to heaven, I'm a pastor. For goodness sakes, I'm gonna get to heaven and say, hey, why should I let you in? I pastored my whole life. Oh, oh okay, come on in. No. I embody spiritually privilege, spiritual privilege. But even if you're a descendant of Abraham, that doesn't get you in. It is only by the grace of God and the response of faith, trusting in what Jesus has done for us that opens the doors of heaven and welcomes us in. I think about Northwest Indiana. This community is loaded with people who at one time in their life were a part of a church, maybe even a good church, were part of things of the kingdom of God and would have sung robustly in a service just like this. At one time in their life, they would have professed Jesus, but today they're committed to never darkening the door of a church again. And that's for a whole host of reasons. And maybe you wandered into our church today and this is your very first step. I want to identify with you because I have often thought if we could just somehow reconnect with a small percentage of the massive number of people in our community who have totally given up on Christianity, that alone would be a revival. Paul is warning anyone who thinks spiritual family legacy alone saves. Hell will have many, many people who can quote many, many verses. And they probably will in hell. And they will remember truth that could have saved them. But it didn't. Why? They were trusting in something other than what Christ has done. And I just wonder if that might be you today. Because it is not too late for you to change that whole status before God. Quit trusting in who you are. Quit looking in the mirror and thinking you're special. See a sinner who needs forgiveness and the grace of God Amen. and put your hope and trust in Christ. And then welcome, join the rest of us who don't deserve any of this but are privileged because of God's grace to us. So that's the Isaiah portion, and it's the warning against the spiritual privilege. I want to spend most of my time on Hosea, though, because this is such a rich Portion of Scripture. Look again at verse 24. He flows out of that vessels of mercy uh, section and he says this Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said of them, You are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. Amen. So, what Paul's addressing here is the opposite of the spiritually privileged. He is addressing here the spiritually disenfranchised. Because if the privileged think that they are in with God because of who they are, the disenfranchised think that they are out with God because of who they are. You get the opposite? It's one thing to think I'm in because of my DNA. It's another thing to think I can never be in because of who I am. And specifically here in the context, it is Gentiles. These are not descendants of Abraham, not recipients of the Old Testament Scriptures, not uh, blessed by the Mosaic Covenant. Can non-Jews who have lived rather than trying to obey the law have actually pretty much lived trying to disobey the law? Can Gentiles who have lived immoral lives, Gentiles who have lived godless, idolatrous, worldly, like, you know, I don't care about God kind of lives, can people like that actually be under the grace of God? Can Sodomites be saved? Can Gomorrahites be saved? In fact, why did Jonah flee? One of my girl's favorite stories is Jonah. What story do you want me to tell? Tell me the story of Jonah. Okay. Okay. Why? Because they think it's a whale of a story, right? So we we tell them the story of Jonah over and over and over again. And I haven't really been able to get to the theological aspect of the story, which is not so much that Jonah ran, but why he ran. And if you know the story of Jonah, the reason that he ran was not because he was afraid of Nineveh or he was afraid of the Assyrians uh, or that he wanted a Mediterranean vacation. He ran because he was a racist, and there was no way that he wanted the mercy of God to go to those Assyrians in Nineveh, because that's what preaching and revelation is. It's always, even a word of judgment is a sign of God's mercy, and he ran rather than seeing them receive mercy. And isn't that the fear, I think, of the spiritually privileged, that God would allow the spiritually racially different and the spiritually impure into the club worse than that let them in the club of heaven forever there's no getting them out at that point why would we want these sorts of people in here and so paul now and, and this is part of his ministry was he had a hard time convincing the 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 synagogue folk to believe that the uh the the temple Roman Greek-worshipping God people are part of God's plan as well. Read the story of Acts. But Paul knew the Bible like few people have ever known it. And he reaches into the Jewish sacred text to prove that God loves Gentiles as well. And who does he bring up? Of all people, he brings up Hosea. Now here's the challenge i have here today i'm going to guess that the majority of people here did not read hosea this week and i'm going to guess that there are many people here who don't know the story of hosea and it's probably the best story in the bible that you don't know and i'm just going to sketch it for you and maybe you'll get excited and read hosea this week that would be great but let me just tell you about hosea i mean after all he does have a book of the bible named after him this is an old testament prophet. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom. So if you know the story of Israel, very quickly, you have under, under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the kingdom is divided. You have 10 tribes in the north. Their name continues on as Israel. Then you have these two tribes in the south, and their name is Judah. So if you read First and Second Kings, First 1 and 2 Chronicles, you have this kind of story of the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, and all the things that happen. So Hosea is a prophet in the northern kingdom, and his ministry is shortly before God's judgment through the Assyrians comes to Israel in 722 BC, where they come in, they basically wipe out those 10 tribes of the north. And so Hosea's prophecy is a prophecy about God's impending judgment. Now, here's the compelling thing about Hosea like God did with other prophets. Jeremiah, as an example, God decides to not only use Hosea's words as a prophetic expression, but also Hosea's life. He uses Hosea's life. And here's where it gets so interesting. Hosea's story was to be a picture of God's mercy to a rebellious people, Israel. How? Well, here's what God did. Hosea had a wife named Gomer. Gomer um, slept around a lot. In fact, so much so that she quietly moved into prostitution. When your wife's a prostitute, that's a hard thing. Their marriage ends, and God tells Hosea, I want you to remarry Gomer. He had to buy her out of debts and such with her prostitution. And we are told that Gomer was not received back because she repented. She never expressed some like, hey, I was totally wrong, would you have me back kind of moment. She never went forward at a Billy Graham crusade. There was none of that. Hosea, marries, remarries Gomer as an act of obedience to God. And I would say that's a pretty tough one. Don't you think? And what we find is then is that Hosea's life is to be a living parable of God's relationship with Israel. Hosea has three children through Gomer. God tells him what he's supposed to name her, name the kids. The first one's a daughter. Her name is Jezreel. The second one and the third one, these are the ones that Paul focuses on, Here's the name of the first son, not loved. Name of the second son, not my people. Now, I could probably go through our entire nursery list and not find a name like that. We typically pick names that, you know, well, this is, you know, this was my grandmother's name. This was my, you know, that we picked this name for a particular reason, and it's typically kind of, you know, nice. <laughs> These are names of judgment. Not loved, not my people. Imagine these names. A child named not loved. Hey, not loved. Even your daddy doesn't love you. He named you not loved. He only did it because God told him to. Yeah, right. Hey, not my people. Is is that really your name? Not my people? Really? Your mommy and daddy weren't very proud of you. They named you disowned. Disowned. That's so hilarious. These are odd names for kids, don't you think? Not loved, not my people. Why would God do this? Like, why? And again, the reason is is that he is using Hosea's life as a living parable and prophecy regarding God's relationship with Israel. Unfaithful Gomer is a picture of unfaithful Israel. His children, a picture and a statement of God's rejection of Israel. Not mine anymore, not loved anymore. This reminds me of the lyrics to the Michael Jackson song, Billie Jean. Billie Jean is not my lover. She's just a girl who claims I am the one. But the kid is not my son. She says, I am the one, but the kid is not my son and that lyric flowing out of less than ideal circumstances sounds like and this is where the story of hosea it's not like sort of polite company kind of story it's it's a gritty story a story of rejection of betrayal it's messy And it's these names that Paul keys in on and a dramatic change of name and status. Look at verse 25 again. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will now call what? My people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. This is a prophecy through Hosea. Of a future time when God will once again pursue Israel as Hosea pursued and remarried unfaithful Gomer. He will say to those who are not my people, you are now my people. And those that are not loved, you are now my beloved. And Paul applies here, there's a little twist here. He applies Hosea and his kids to the Gentiles, and identifies the Gentiles also as those who were not loved, and those who were not my people. And yet, and here's the big point, because God is sovereign in his grace, his expression of salvation is not limited to those of a particular DNA, those of a particular ethnicity or race. Now even the Gentiles can have status before God, now loved, now my people. Loved, welcomed, and sons of the living God, adopted into the family of God. And the, point, the redemptive point here is there is a wideness to the love of God. There is a wideness to the grace and the mercy of God, far wider than anybody suspected. Remember, even Jesus' disciples, after living three years with Jesus, have a hard time realizing that God's plan is to save the Gentiles as well. Who would ever thought of that? The scope of the mercy of God, I think many people still don't realize the scope of the mercy of God, because God is sovereign in salvation and infinite in his mercy. This means his love is free to extend into the hearts of the worst of sinners. I told you this was going to be an encouragement because I suspect we've got some really bad sinners here today. Even the worst of sinners, even those who have bowed to the idols of the world, even the worst of the worst, God can extend mercy to them and apply Jesus' work to them. Like Hosea loving the prostitute Gomer and marrying her, God's scandalous grace saves the least expected and the most unworthy. I said scandalous grace. I like that little phrase. Because it is scandalous in that by faith in Jesus, we don't move from You know, think of the spectrum here. You have love here, hate here. We don't move from love to just tolerated. We move from not loved to be loved. The complete opposite of the whole spectrum in the eyes of God. We go from not welcomed to fully accepted. From orphans to sons and daughters of the most high God. How does this happen? To what do we attribute it? In the words of one theologian, because it's grace, not race. I got thinking about just the the extraordinary nature of this because in our culture and in human nature and the way that relationships operate, the way that we roll typically this does not happen very often, if ever, because in, in our sort of world, people don't go from hated to loved. We go the opposite way, okay? We hardly ever go this way, but we are very quick to go from love to hated, in no time. People we once liked and trusted and loved, they betray us, they stab us in the back, They hurt us, and what happens to their status in our hearts? They very quickly go from loved and trusted to hated. You are out of the circle of love, never to return. We naturally flow that direction. What we can hardly do is to go from hate to love. We might as well swim up a waterfall for a human heart to go from hated to loved. At best, we can go from hate to tolerate. I got thinking about that. Perhaps that's a new word, toler-hate. <laughs> are there any people in your family at the family gathering that are pretty much tolerated? hated I think a lot of family relationships end up there and unfortunately a lot of friendships do as well, but that's just human nature, right? To go from not loved to be loved is superhuman. And the Bible would tell us that is the nature of divine love. He calls me, think of this, friend, be loved. He calls me, be loved. I was not loved, but when I receive his offer of forgiveness by faith in Jesus' full and complete work on the cross, then forever forever I am beloved. In fact, the verb, it's in the passive tense. The passive means it's something that is, that is not, that you, active is I do it. Passive, it's, it's done to me. And that's the sense here. He could have said, you know, we go from not loved to now loved. But no, it is not loved to be loved. In Christ, we are beloved. We are be-mercied. We are be-justified. We are begraced. We are bewildered that we are beloved. Christian, think of it. The Most High guy, God, calls you beloved. The love of God, the scale, the wideness, the scope. God is sovereign in his saving love. Here's how the hymn writer says it, trying to use words to describe the love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God sent his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Whether you are spiritually privileged today, and we have many people like that, or you are spiritually underprivileged today, and we have many like that as well, hear God's word today. God will call not my people, my people. Amen. Not loved, beloved. How does he do it? The theme of all of Romans 1, Romans verse 1, chapter 1 verse 16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation who all, to all who believe to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. And friend, that's the point. It's the power of God into salvation. If you are here today, privileged, underprivileged, somewhere in between, it doesn't matter. Place your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ. It is an offer of God's grace and love, full and free. He has done the work for us. We receive it by faith and put our trust in Christ. And today, your status will change in the eyes of God from not loved to be loved. How do you do it? Here's a few verses later. Just a few verses later, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And if you're a Christian here today, it's just another opportunity to revel and wonder at the love and mercy, the wideness of God's grace to us that reached you, no matter your status, and changed your identity and status forever, from not loved to be loved forever and ever, amen. All praise be to God.